Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly chronological order. Currently, we are examining The Man Who Japed. This will be the second episode on The Man Who Japed, so I urge you to go back and listen to the previous um, episode where I look at the first, I think it's three chapters of, of this novel. So, but... But just in way of review, um, the first few chapters of the, of the Man Who Chafed, we, we meet a man named Alan Purcell who works in a private agency that's that produces propaganda that conforms to the ideology of the state. So basically, he's a contractor for the government and he, his, his goal is to produce advertising for for the government and his the focus of his production and the focus of what he makes is is the ideology of the state which is moral reclamation so his propaganda is focused on this concept and basically it's it's a very conservative moralistic philosophy about sexual morality community values um, family that kind of stuff so it's very much like the western conservative philosophy that you see emerge I think kind of if you were to imagine like the 80s moral majority becoming a ruling ideology you'd get something similar to moral reclamation now this world emerged in the aftermath of a nuclear conflict and in the aftermath of this nuclear conflict society was reconstructed essentially or world government was constructed by a military commander um, named Stryker who Basically, comes he comes from white South Africa. He's actually from Dutch origin in in South Africa, and he, through the military, takes over society and implements this philosophy of moral reclamation. And so, this is set sometime quite a while actually after this this revolution and this this conservative uh, takeover. Purcell uh, goes to work, and he has one of his one of the works they produced criticized by a superior. So he produces basically these advertising campaigns he calls packets, or they're called packets, which are essentially just posters or ads or things like that. And his one of his works is criticized by superiors in the government who says we can't basically buy this. So he's forced to fire a longtime employee. Sometime after this, impressed by the way he handled this criticism and pr- you know, impressed with his experience as a worker or as a contractor for the government up to this point, he's offered a job in the formal government bureaucracy. He doesn't yet fully accept it. He says he's going to think about it. But um, that that's kind of what happens in the first few chapters. But we also learn that this is a society that's expanding. There is an active frontier. Now, many of the frontiers are seen as morally problematic. Some are actually populated with people who are considered outside uh, like beyond hope morally these are called um noobs is what is the pejorative term for them or they're just called neuropsychotics that's the formal name for them those are people who basically cannot be saved and there's actually a whole 
planet, a whole society in which these people live. But also, in general, the frontier is seen as problematic. In fact, that was the root difficulty with uh, the original packet that was criticized by, uh, that Purcell's packet was criticized. In the one hand, Purcell, the image was about plants in the frontier dying. And the idea was if they don't, the idea he was trying to convey here was the tree of moral reclamation will die in the frontier if people don't stick to their communities and the morality and, 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 and if they forget their homeland. This was criticized by the government because there was an active program of trying to encourage agriculture in the frontier. And so there, there seemed to be a conflicted uh, a question about, you know, should we focus on agriculture? And then we don't want the image of, of plants dying in the frontier or the original intention of, of the packet. That's basically all that happens in the first uh, three chapters. So this brings us to chapter four. Well, Alan is, is back talking to his wife and his wife is upset and worried because she doesn't know if she wants her husband to take this job. And actually, Alan announces that, yeah, I've been offered this job as a director of telemedia, which would basically be the director of the propaganda engine of of the whole society, which is a big promotion. Um, it's something he may have expected because it sounds like they often would promote these from the these agencies, these independent contractors. But his wife is very scared about that, I think, because the life expectancy of the job is not that high. This, it's, it's very stressful and it's not really the life she wants. She doesn't want to be that high profile. So... We learn a little bit about the the previous director and how he's retiring. Mavis is his name. He's resigning. He's going to go off and live in the Sierra system. So he's going to go off the frontier. So frontier is sort of a place of of retirement. So his response to his wife is that we are bound to serve society. This is the heart of moral reclamation. And he, he says, the moral responsibility to serve, to take on the burden of civic life, the highest form of self-sacrifice, the oomphless of this whole. And then Janet replies, this is just a, just be honest, it's just a rat race. It's not really about service. It's just about pushing one's, one's way up. And then they talk about the packet that got rejected. And we get a little bit more on the thinking that went behind the rejection of it and what he was thinking when he created it. And he says, the tree has died in isolation. And perhaps the morek, the kind of the moral lesson of the packet was confused and obscure. But to him, it came over clearly enough. A man was primarily responsible to his fellows and it was with his fellows that he made his life. So this is, again, a reminder of why he might choose to take this job, right? His duty to serve the state. And then we get the newspaper and some of Purcell's strange behavior gets addressed. It's, it's something I didn't mention, actually, is that Purcell has been behaving a bit oddly in the first chapters. Like he has dirt on his shoes and grass on his shoes, which is pretty rare because there's not that many places he would have gone that had it. He went to Hokkaido, which was like a irradiated kind of wasteland from the war that people don't really go to very often. That's where he said he went. So... It's not really clear what he was up to there, but it, it's kind of revealed what what has been going on at this point. And that is they get they talk about the news that the Streiter statue was desecrated in the central park of the city. Now, Streiter, of course, they call him Striker before Streiter is the the head of this 
revolution, the moral reclamation um, revolution. So there's a statue of him kind of holding his head forward, holding his hand forward, looking to the future. This is one of the central statues. And it was vandalized. The details of how it was vandalized aren't really in the news report. But after talking about this a little bit, basically he confesses that he did this. And she wants, you know, because this is a big thing. If they get caught, they'll lose their lease, which will make me and they're basically homeless. He'll lose his career. You know, what kind of, you know, it's a really a, it's a serious crime to desecrate a statue of the revolutionary leader of, of this society. And he explains he doesn't really know why he did it. And while while they're eating, they're eating this uh, baked, quote unquote, last salmon. Much of the food here is synthesized and um, automated. And he, they talk about japing and the term japing, you know, just joking or whatever. But it, it seems to come from this advertising industry. And he, he says a term we use in packet assembly. When a theme is harped on too much, you get a parody. When we make fun of a stale theme, we say we've japed it. And then he says, I japed the statue of Major Stryker. And so it's still a kind of a mystery about why he did this. And I don't think that mystery is ever fully um, explained, like what psycholo psychological things led him to do this act. Um, but, but there it is. Our hero did this, van this act of vandalism. And it's where we get our title from, the man who japed, right? Our, our main character is this, the titular man who japed through his... First this act, and then later th other things he's going to do later on in the novel. So chapter four, five. I guess. So in this chapter, Purcell just goes to the park to kind of see the site of what happened. And it's all covered up, right? The, the government doesn't want people to see what happened to the statue. So the statue is just covered up. And the, 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 I think the formal line is that the statue was just kind of vandalized in a, in a, in a minor way and it can be fixed. And there's people around talking about what happened, and some blame anarchists, uh, some blame people who just maybe lost their lease and are upset about that. Um, others think it's a more serious threat to them. And like the, the guy who claims it's anarchist said, you know, to the to the idea that it was just kids doing it, says that's what they want you to think. Sure, a harmless prank. I'll tell you something: the people that did this mean to overthrow Morak. They won't rest till every scrap of morality and decency has been trampled into the ground. They want to see fornication and neon signs and dope come back. They want to see waste and rapidity rule sovereign and vainglorious men writhe in the sink pit of his own greed. But others just think it's not a big deal. Um, but it, it's kind of fascinating that had it been really anarchists who want to overthrow moral reclamation, and the response to that would be, you know, a government, maybe suppression of movements, uh, uh, clamping down on morality, more regulation of people's moral lives, then it, you could almost predict, especially if you're thinking like Philip Dick might, that it would have been a false flag operation. But at this point, we know it was Purcell doing it. We just don't know why he did it and what was his intention. And he doesn't even really confess that he knows what, he, what happened. We get a little bit more description of what happened, that paint was put on it, red paint. And that's actually red paint from the his advertising agency uh, that produces these advertisements. It's this red paint. 
that the head was cut off using some kind of industrial cutter. And then because the statue itself was made of a kind of plastic, kind of a hardcore heavy duty plastic, it was melted so the knees buckled. And so the statue itself was reformed to make it look like it was kicking his head. So his head was put into his hand. And then instead of reaching out to the future, Strider is going to be kicking, basically punting his head into the future. So that was the image of the statue. That was done. But the extent of the vandalism is hidden to us. What was hidden to the public, it's not hidden to the reader, it's hidden to the public. And then someone, though, basically confesses maybe what's going on here and that in Purcell's mind is that, and this is actually a mysterious character who shows up and talks to Purcell about it. And it's all, it's all rather suspicious conversation. But she says, maybe somebody was expressing a subconscious resentment of Morak fighting back against this burden the system imposes. And she gives a, Purcell a little more detail on what the extent of the vandalism. Now, the reason this character is suspicious is because Dick tells us at the end of chapter five, quote, sometime later, after the girl was completely gone, he realized that, they, that she had been standing there in the park waiting for him, waiting because she knew he would show up. So that's another kind of mystery for now, was what this woman's purpose here is. So in the next chapter, chapter six, Purcell is back in his office and he gets the call from Sue Frost and Telemedia, basically, you know, at pushing him on his decision to take the job or not. And he delays. He, he basically says, I need to consider a lot. I, I don't know. I know yet any more time. So he kicks that um, issue down the, down the road. The next issue that comes up is simply the man he fired, Fred Luddy, and he's been a longtime employee. So he wants a letter of recommendation and his back pay and all that stuff. So that, that's not that important but mostly he starts to think about this this woman quote he had told the girl he needed help and he did not because he had japed the statue but because he had japed it without understanding why ah that the brain could function on its own without acquainting him with its purpose its reasons but the brain was an organ like the spleen hearts kidneys and they went on their private activities so why not the brain? Reasoning out the way the bizarre quality evaporated. But he still had to find out what was happening. And so he reaches into his wall and he gets out this piece of paper that she gave him. And it says, Health Resort Gretchen Malparto. So then this is this girl's name. But this is all illegal. It's illegal to solicit mental health resorts. In fact, being mentally ill is to be not Morak, I guess. In fact, the the colony of neuropsychotics is really a colony of people who have rejected moral reclamation and that's indistinguishable from mental illness. So there's a suspicion about mental illness and that's something we'll pick up more next time because that'll be a big theme in the, in the next episode in this series. So Purcell gets another call from Sue Frost. I think the first time he left a message and this is the response where she says, basically you can't, you don't have a week. We don't have time. You have to make a decision right away. And then he goes and calls the number Gretchen Malparto. And Gretchen's not there, but he says, do you, you want to speak to her husband, uh, Dr. Malparto? And then he just makes an appointment to go visit that mental health clinic. And he makes the appointment under the name of Coates. So he does it under a false name. And then that brings us to chapter seven, um, which is a really, a, it's a, 
a fun chapter to say the least. It's it's basically set back in Purcell's home unit. And something we learned early in the novel is that there are basically your center of social life is this housing unit you live in and your lease is your most important asset you have. I guess all the property is, is essentially owned by the state so everyone is a lease holder on property and that's the big threat. If you, if you don't conform, if you don't fit in, you could lose your lease. Um, and it's a sort of a lot of source of a lot of anxiety and tension in the society. But these buildings in which you live in, these apartment buildings, are also the center of your social and community life. And there are people here in this in this in Purcell's unit. It's a woman named Mrs. Um, Birmingham who are responsible for the morality of of the people who live there. And one way they regulate it is they have these block meetings every week in which people's moral lives are examined, called out, regulated, publicly condemned, and people have to ask for redemption. So it's very much a a confessional culture here where people's bad behavior is is identified and people are forced to redemption, you know, to do this redemption. It's almost like a public confession, but it's well, it is basically essentially a public confession, but it's also the a calling out culture, which I think might be interesting to um, current readers thinking about, you know, the focus on political correctness and, you know, some of the concerns people have with political correctness is it's going to lead to a kind of a call-out culture like this where people uh, are condemned for small defects in their character or, or mistakes they made at one point in their life. We learn that there are basically technologies that can keep an eye on people for surveillance, and it's, it's for moral surveillance, essentially. Quote, his attention fixed itself on the pack of juveniles. They were there, the earwig-like sluice. Each juvenile was a foot and a half long. The species scuttled close to the ground or up vertical surfaces at ferocious speeds. And they noticed everything. The juveniles, these juveniles were inactive. The wardens had unlocked the mental halls and dug out the report tapes. The juveniles remained intact during the meeting and they were put back into service. There was something sinister about these mental informers. But there was also something heartening. The juveniles did not accuse. They only reported what they saw and heard. They couldn't color the information, and they couldn't make it up. Since the victim was indicted mechanically, he was safe from hysterical hearsay, from malice and paranoia. But there could be no question of guilt. The evidence was already in. The, the issue to be settled here was the, the, merely the severity of moral lapse. The victim couldn't protest that he had been unjustly accused. All he could protest was his bad luck at having been overheard. End quote. That, this is very important because this is has to all deal with the surveillance state and how much government regulation and oversight will will see. For instance, on the one hand, surveillance might make us feel less secure in certain ways, but a lot of people seem to support it. And think about you know like there are people in jail now for crimes they didn't commit. Had we had better surveillance, they probably never would have been thrown in jail, right? We rely on eyewitnesses. We rely on of material evidence that might be faulty. You know, had we had a more elaborate security state, perhaps there's a lot of people who are in jail now who don't deserve to be, who wouldn't who wouldn't be. At the same time, there'll be more people in jail who deserve to be there because of more crimes would be identified. But it would make doubt it would create less doubt. And that's what Purcell is talking about here. That the juvenile the system of juveniles, which I think if you saw Minority Report, you can get an idea, the movie version, if you can get an idea of what these juveniles are these kind of spidery things that crawl around and, and keep tabs at everyone. 
there's that one nice scene in that movie where they're searching around and trying to get the identity of everyone in the building. It's kind of, like, you know, you can imagine sort of like that, but it, they report on everything. And so if you're accused of something, it's not because someone just thinks you're a witch, right? It's not a witch hunt. It's they actually, you actually did something wrong and you're being called out for that. So it's a little bit more fair, but it also means there's less space for people to, um, basically there's there's not no spaces where people can escape the surveillance of their lives so i think it's a interesting question that dick starts to explore here so once everyone is here and we start to get the calling out and so miss birmingham leads this because she's the head of the the unit and you know just give you one case here we will first undertake the case of miss j e Mrs. Birmingham stated, Miss J.E. was Julia Elderberry, and everybody in the room knew her. Julie had been up time and again, but somehow she managed to hang on her lease willed by her family. Scared and wide-eyed, she now mounted the defendant's stage, the young blonde hair with long legs and intrepid bosom, or intriguing bosom. Today, she wore a modest pink dress and low-heeled slippers. Her hair was tied back in a girlish knot. Mrs. J.E., Mrs. Birmingham declared, did willingly and knowingly on the night of October 6, 2114, engage with a man in vile enterprise. And this basically is sex. And she has to admit it because there's basically proof of it. And she has to provide uh, details. Now, Alan does... Alan does ask for more details on what this vile enterprise was, so he kind of puts on a little bit of a defense attorney role for a little bit more detail, but that's also more titillating if you get the details, right? And then so Birmingham is forced to give the details to the community, which is another really fun thing about this kind of society because it's so worked up about morality, but the way it regulates it and enforces it is by talking about it all the time, right? They can use euphemisms, but they don't want people to drink, but that means they have to talk about drinking all the time in public meetings. They don't want people to have sex outside of marriage, so that, but they have to talk about it all the time. You know, and everyone knows what kind of vile enterprise means, but Purcell sort of pushes it a little bit. So there's a bit of a jape um, there. Now, the interesting thing here is that essentially Mr. AP, Alan Purcell, gets called out too for being drunk. Uh, and that's the events that happened right before the beginning of the novel, but they're talking about right in the first chapter that basically he came home late one night and Birmingham had actually confronted him earlier about him coming in late. And they now have proof that he was drunk and he has to give his account of that night. So Purcell engages in this back and forth with a character just referred to as the voice of voice. And it's not identified. Um, directly in I don't think it's identified in the chapter oh yeah it is it's this guy Wales um, but they engage in this back and forth and it, it gives Purcell a chance to defend himself and there's a little bit of philosophizing about the whole nature of this surveillance system quote the mockery is, this is the voice, a mockery is Mrs. Pur Mr. Purcell is one of our most distinguished members. As, as most of us know, Mr. Purcell's agency supplies a good deal of the materials used by telemedia. Are we supposed to believe that a man involved in the maintenance of society's ethical standards is himself morally defective? And what does that say about society in general? This, this a paradox is, 
It is just such high-minded men devoted to public service who set by their own examples our standards of conduct. Mr. Purcell's family leased here several decades. Mr. Purcell was born here. During his lifetime, many people have come and gone. Few of us have maintained a lease as long as he have as long as he has. How many of us were here in the room before Mr. Purcell? Think it over. The purpose of these sessions is not the humbling of the mighty. He isn't up there so we can derate and ridicule him. Some of us seem to imagine the more respectable a person is, the more reason to attack him. When we attack Mr. Purcell, we attack our better selves, and there's no percentage in that. These meetings operate on the idea that a man is morally responsible to his community. That's a good idea, but his community is also morally responsible to him. If he isn't going to ask him to come up and confess his sins, it's not to give him something in return. It's got to give him its respect and support. It should realize that having a citizen like Mr. Purcell up here is a privilege. His life is devoted to our welfare and improvement in our society. So this long speech given by this man who is identified later on as Wales helps him get off the hook. Basically, it, it, it gives the... Basically, Birmingham has to sort of back away from her, some of her more uh, harsh designs on our on our hero. But we got some interesting themes here about, again, about surveillance and about community and, you know, how we as a society that's reaching this point of total surveillance where everything people do is going to be known or released, how we manage that and how we punish people who don't conform. And I'm not going to come to any conclusions here, only to say that in our current environment and with the Me Too movement and a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm recording this in January of 2018. So in this particular environment, I think it's it's relevant to ponder the proper way we, we handle this and how... You know, and the, the idea that is offered here by this character, Wales, is that, you know, the question of why, where does it get us just to knock down the mighty and the powerful, right? It's, it's actually the problem is much more deeply rooted in society. And it's not good enough to just knock down a few um, famous and important people and condemn them and publicly ostracize them and take away their career. The problems are, are much deeper, you know. So th that's all I'll say. I, I don't know if this is useful to anyone to think about, but there it is. It's it's certainly speaking to us in at least some ways. So that does it with uh, part two of my comments and my thoughts on the man who japed. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on these works of Philip K. Dick. If you have comments of your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then we'll be back with part three of The Man Who Changed. My tired thoughts once on That living dies, that living dies, that living dies